All right. Well, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, starting yet another new book in the Word of God as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. If you're new here to Calvary Chapel, we just go right through the whole counsel of God. I want to encourage you to pray about coming out on Wednesday. We'll be in Judges chapter 5 this coming Wednesday, and a great chapter as, as they all are. Now this morning, as we're going to look at another letter being written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, we know that the Holy Spirit's the one who writes everything, but he's the, he's the one who God used in this case to write it down. And I'm going to take quite a few minutes here because I want us to get a background on this letter because I believe this is, as everything in the Bible is powerful, but this is one of the most powerful letters you're ever going to read. And the reason is the thing that it focuses on and the one who it emphasizes. While this, this epistle, and each epistle is addressed to the struggles or false teaching taking place within the church where the letters are being written, each one of these letters addresses areas that still have an impact on you and I today. And just briefly, I'll give you a couple of examples. When we went through the, the letter to the church at Galatia, if you'll remember what was going on there was there was those who were teaching you had to be justified by doing good works. So they were teaching that you got to do good works, you got to be perfect, you got to live the right life or you're not going to heaven. And so Paul wrote this letter to say, no, 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 gospel of grace. Now the truth is still going on today that so many people are teaching, well, you've got to keep these many rules or you're not getting into heaven. And praise God that that's not the case, amen, or how many people would be going? Nobody. Because the Bible says without Him we can do nothing. And praise God that the standard is not my righteousness, but it's His. And praise God that He paid the price that I could not pay. So the letter written to Galatia was to refute this works-based salvation. We then got to Ephesians, and it was written to believers, encouraging them to continue to grow in their spiritual maturity. They'd been born again, they knew the Lord, yet they continued to live like people who we're brand new in their faith over and over again. You know, can I encourage you, no matter how long you've been saved, God wants you to keep growing. And too, too many of us, it's, you know, again, we, got, we think the finish line is salvation. That's the starting point. Yes, we've been born again. Yes, we're going to heaven. Yes, that's the most important thing. But we ought to continue to grow in our walk with the Lord. So Ephesians was written to demonstrate to these who are spiritually immature, live surrounded by idolatry, that their riches were in Christ. The first three chapters are positioned in Christ, blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, assured. And the second half, the practice of a Christian. Because we're rich in Christ, how should we live? The last letter we just finished was Philippians. Now that letter was written, again, trying to seek to bring unity back into the church. The church was torn apart, there was fighting within the church, infighting within the body, and he writes this letter telling them how to have joy in spite of people or in spite of your circumstances. In the book of Philippians, as we know, the word joy is used 19 times. So that being said, we now come to Colossians. And where the emphasis on previous books, again, were things that were great for us to learn. The emphasis in this book is as great as anything that can ever be emphasized. And I just want to tell you, Pastor Bill and I were talking about this this week, and he said this is his favorite book in the Bible. And I can see why. Because it's such a powerful picture, and it's so important for us to comprehend what it's going to teach us. Let me tell you who Colossians was written to. It was written to combat a heresy that was growing within the church. The heresy was that they were adding things to Christianity. You had some Christianity 
plus some paganism, plus some Gnosticism, which I'll talk about, plus Judaism, plus mysticism, and you stir them all up together, and there it is. What does that sound like? Santa Cruz, right? Sounds like the religion section in the Santa Cruz Sentinel. I go through that thing, there's a hundred people listed, and it's just the biggest disaster of anything I've ever seen. Someone's being offended right now, I want you to know the Lord loves you, all right? Here's the thing, Gnosticism had two main tenets. It believed that salvation was through some mystical exclusive knowledge. Some mystical exclusive knowledge out there. It's just something mystical about it. And you know, again, when we, were, we met at the vet's hall downtown, everybody was chanting to the moon god or whatever else. And here's the truth, you guys. There's only one God. And all these other false religions, all these other things are created by men. They also believed that all matter was evil. So because they believed that, they called for the harsh treatment of their own bodies to control its lust. You ever see these guys on TV with a stick and spears through their arms and doing things like that and again it's kind of along those same lines that you know because my body is evil because my body does evil things I must punish my body the heresy also taught that they needed not along with Gnosticism being involved that they needed to observe some of the Jewish religious rites if you didn't keep some of the Jewish laws along with the the Gnostic beliefs along with the Christian beliefs you didn't get it you weren't going And this heresy was running rampant. You had to observe certain days. And if you didn't observe it on that certain day, you didn't really get it. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like the gymnasium we're meeting in right now. The truth is that there are some that believe if you don't meet on this day, you don't really know God. To God, every day is the same. We worship God every day. We ought to be worshiping God every day. Amen? And what happens, though, is we get so focused on the minor details that we're missing out on what really matters, and that's what was happening in Colossae. Not only was Gnosticism abounding, but there is, along with everything else, you had to keep a really rigorous diet to keep your pursuit of holiness. I'm glad that's not in the Bible. Amen? All you can eat is grass and, you know, whatever, right? I mean, I praise God that he says, Acts 10, rise, kill, and eat. So we're just being obedient when we barbecue. Praise the Lord. Amen? So the point is that, you know, they, had, they were adding to the gospel. They were adding stuff. And again, all this stuff kept coming. They believed and promoted and relied heavily upon human philosophy and knowledge. And you know what? Man loves to think he's really smart. We think we're just really smart. And you know, and you know what? You may be. It all depends on who you're comparing yourself to. You may be the smartest person in this room. That's possible. But here's the point. You're not very smart compared to God. Why? You know what? He put the stars in the sky. He spoke the world into existence. How are you measuring up to that program? And too often we get puffed up because we think we're so smart because we figured something out. I remember when they got a satellite in the sky. They've been working years and they finally got this satellite in the sky. And they were just so arrogant and, oh, look what we've done. And we've just, oh, and look how great we are. And, oh. and I'm thinking, he put billions of them up there with one word. It's all, it depends on who we compare ourselves with. The other thing they began to do was worship angels. You see that in the world today too, don't you? Guys, we don't worship angels. Amen? We don't worship, the angels worship God. If the angels could talk, they'd say, don't do that. Bow to an angel, get up, right? He says, no, we worship 
Him and Him alone. And today you see this, people worshiping angels. Then they began to make attacks upon the central truth of Jesus Christ. That's always what happens. What happens first is you start adding to it, and then before you know it, you're taking away from it. And then when you, finally you get to the place where it's not the gospel anymore. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. They then taught that they alone had the real truth. You ever heard that before? We're the only ones that have the answer. Nobody, you got to be baptized in our baptismal at our church, in this certain way, in this certain ritual, or you're not going. And guys, we need to be careful because the Word of God is the authority, not the words or thoughts or rituals of man. So salvation through mystical exclusive knowledge, all matter is evil, the observance of certain rites essential for salvation, a rigorous diet in pursuit of holiness, relying heavily upon human philosophies and knowledge. By the way, I want to make this real clear. We don't check our brains at the door when we become Christians. That would be foolish. We're not Christians in spite of the evidence. That would be superstition. We examine all the evidence, and you know what? The Bible's true. Archaeologically, true. Historically, true. Scientifically, true. You know what happens when scientists sit down and try to prove the Bible wrong? You know what happens? Ask Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, this guy's as sharp as they come. I guarantee he's smarter than anybody in this room. And he, wrote, and he wanted to write a book proving that there was no God and the Bible was filled with errors. And he sat down to prove it. He was going to wipe out Christianity where it stood. And in a few months, guess what happened? Josh McDale got saved. Because one of two things happen if you study the Bible. You either get saved or you just stay in flat out rebellion and you realize you cannot find... There are no contradictions in the Bible. I love when people tell me that. Filled with contradictions. Name one. I, well, I, I know they're in there. No, they're not. And I love when people are authority on something they've never read. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, get in God's word. We don't check our brains at the door. God's word is sufficient and we need to stay in it more and more. It is the authority. So they relied heavily on human knowledge and philosophies and the worship of angels. They attacked the central truth of Jesus Christ. They believed that they alone had the truth. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun because this does sound like the city we live in today. Nothing new. With all its politically correct mi mixture of all things spiritual, its rejection of the centrality of Jesus Christ, they'll say that's narrow and bigoted. You believe that Jesus Christ alone is the way? That's narrow. You know what? Two plus two is narrow and it's still right. Amen? It's when people challenge truth as being narrow. There's only one God. There's only one truth. There's only one hope. There's only one life. Think about it this way, you guys. How can you take some truth and add a lie to it? When you do, you know what you have? A lie. And here's the thing. We make the mistake of thinking, why can't all religions be true? Now you are checking your brain at the door if you believe that. Because you cannot have appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment and have reincarnation at the same time. Those both cannot be true. There cannot be only one God and yet many gods at the same time. Those both cannot be true. Doesn't this make sense? 
But yet you have people grabbing, well, I got a little bit from Buddha, and I got a little bit from Krishna, and I got a little bit from Muhammad, and I got a little bit, here's the thing, guys, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, dead. Jesus Christ, risen and living Savior, triumphed over sin and death. Amen? We don't serve a dead God. We serve a risen and living Savior. And the truth is that Buddha believed you just, you know, go to nothing. Just get to the point where you can go to nothing. That's foolish. But yet people will say, oh, but I'm a, why? Well, I just want to go to nothing. I'm just, boy, you know, I'm just going to nothing. No, you're not. I, I haven't seen a Buddhist disappear yet. They don't go to nothing. It's not true. Now people say, Pastor, you're being so hard. Guys, we love those folks and we want to see them say. We love them. Jesus died for them as much as he died for me. And we need to make sure that we never come across self-righteous or arrogant. We're, we're sinners saved by grace. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. But the truth is that we can never water down the truth. And it is not narrow or bigoted to speak the truth with authority. The elevation of human philosophy and knowledge and the mixture of all world's religions is seen as enlightened and open-minded. It's not open-minded, it's no-minded. Because how can you be, you're not being open-minded to say, yeah, 2 plus 2 is 4, and it's 2, two plus 2 is 5, and 2 plus 2 is 7, and 2 plus 2 is 11, and we're just open-minded. That's not open-minded, that's stupidity. I know I'm being straight with you guys. Well, that's a shock, isn't it? But here's the point. The point is that my heart breaks when we start to think that we can add to the cross of Christ and it's okay. Because there's nothing new under the sun and that's what this entire letter is all about. Is writing to a group of people, Christians in a city where this was coming in like gangbusters. It couldn't be a better time for us to study it here in Santa Cruz. These false doctrines and practices that were threatening the faith of Colossians, Colossians, uh, the Christians in Colossae continue to be a danger to the church today. And like I said, you add some truth to a lie, it's still a lie. As many people who would call themselves Christians recklessly add, substitute altogether man-made religions or spiritual beliefs to the simplicity of the gospel. You know what I've yet to figure out? Why do you want to add to the gospel? Is it not the simplest thing in the world to understand? Aren't you glad it's not some thing you got to study for 400 years to figure out? You don't have to sit in a room somewhere and chant for 12 hours trying to meet God. That's not it. Here's the gospel, you guys. You're a sinner. God is perfect. God cannot have sin in his presence. So you know what? Sin has to be paid for. And the only way we can be sinful man can be back in the presence of holy God. Someone's got to pay the price. And we're the ones that deserve to pay it. But you know what? God loved us enough that he sent his son to suffer and die and take our sin upon himself and pay the price for us that we might go to heaven. And all we have to do is confess that we're sinners and ask him to be our savior. Is that simple or what? What a simple truth. And why would we want to add to it? Because man wants to have his own way. So how does Paul refute such heresy? that threatened to cause the drifting away from the truth of the gospel. The same way that you and I are today. How do we refute it? By boldly proclaiming the truth of the person and character of Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to do. This whole book is about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is fully God. 
The fact that he is without sin. The fact that he always has been and always will be. That he's the firstborn of creation. We'll get to that next week. The word there is prototokos. That doesn't mean he's firstborn like being born. It means he's first in priority over all creation because he is the creator and he always has been and he always will be. We'll also see as we go through that Jesus is a sufficient savior and he doesn't need any help. Doesn't need to add anything to it to make it more palatable. Paul's letter to, the, to Colossians is one of the most Christ-centered books in the entire Bible. Stressing the supremacy of the person of Christ, the completeness of the salvation found in Him. That Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation, the head of the body which is His church. is complete, completely sufficient for every spiritual and practical need of the believer. So in contrast, Philippians, the word joy 19 times. Guess what? In Colossians, the word Christ 26 times and the word Lord 7 times. What's the focus of this letter? Jesus Christ is Lord. In Ephesians, it's about the church, the body of Christ. In Colossians, it's Christ, the head of the body. The focus is on who the head of the body is. Jesus is our God. He's the groom, we're his bride. He's our redeemer, our savior, our source of hope, the object of our faith, our mediator, our intercessor, our closest friend. We were created for his good pleasure and to worship him and he would rather die than live without us. That's a message we shouldn't keep quiet. Amen? It's a message we shouldn't dial down or be ashamed of because we're afraid of being politically correct. You know what, guys? People around us need to hear it, and we need to love them enough to tell them even when they don't want to hear it. And do it in love. Always. In love. Pray for them by name, that God would soften their hearts. Sadly, in spite of all of what I just said, many Christians fall into the trap of believing some person or religious system, or discipline can add to their spiritual experience when Jesus Christ is enough. We already have all that we will ever need in the person and works of Jesus Christ. Now, quickly an overview on Colossians, we'll go to verse 1. Like many of Paul's letters, it begins with doctrinal truth and then moves to a practical response. He says, okay guys, here's the truth. Now in light of it, here's how you should live. And we see that in Philippians, we see that in Ephesians, we see that in Galatians, and now we're going to see that again in Colossians. It's only four chapters long. The first two chapters speak of the supremacy of Christ. What did Christ do for us? The doctrinal truth. The second two chapters are the practical, what Christ does through us. In light of what he's done for us, what should you and I now do? How should we submit to him? So chapter one, we're going to see the declaring of Christ's preeminence. Chapter 2, the defending of Christ's preeminence. And then the last two chapter, chapters, demonstrating it by living a godly life. Now this morning we're only going to look at the first 14 verses, Lord willing. And we're only going to look at the introduction to the letter and his prayer. And sometimes these are things that people read right over. You know, you get to a book of the Bible and Paul said, and Paul the Apostle, and grace and peace to you. You're right? I want to get to the stuff. But it's all in the Bible for a reason, Amen. And I want us to see something here, because this morning we're going to, as we look at it, and then next week we'll get into the preeminence of Christ in the second half of the chapter, but I believe first there's a great deal we can learn from Paul's greeting and introduction, and the way that he prays for the believers in Colossae. So if you're a note taker, I titled the message, Let Prayer Lead the Way. 
Let prayer lead the way. And we're going to see Paul's heart as he's writing this letter to these people with heresy all around them, being caught up with all these false gods being taught around them. How does he begin? With prayer. That's an example for all of us, you guys. You know, every mighty man and woman of God in the Bible was a man or woman of prayer. We want to be mighty, we want to be used by God, we need to pray more. So first we're going to see the source of Paul's authority. Then we're going to see what brings joy to an apostle's heart. And it's not what televangelists brings joy to their heart. We're going to see what brings joy to his heart. It's not financial gain. It's not physical pleasure. It's not physical comfort. But we'll see that what brings joy to his heart is seeing people in love with Jesus. That's what matters to him. And then lastly, we're going to see that prayer be- goes before ministry and how, how Paul prays for fellow believers. So let prayer lead the way. We're going to see the sor- source of his authority, what brings joy to an apostle's heart, and then how he prays for fellow believers. Let's begin in verse 1. Let prayer lead the way, the source of Paul's authority. Now, re- I want to say a couple things about Colossae. City made up mainly of Gentiles. Church, six years old. Now all this stuff's being stirred up, and Paul has never been there before. Paul's never been to Colossae. You know, not like when he wrote to the Philippian church or church in Ephesus. He'd been their pastor in Ephesus, so they all knew who he was. Well, in this case, he's writing to this church. He's got a heart for them, but they, they know of him certainly, but they don't know him. They've never met him, and now he's writing to them, and he needs to first establish his authority to be able to speak to them about the truth. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, according to the custom of writing, his, uh, the writing letters in those days, they're the opposite of the way we do it today. They started off with who's writing first. And then they would end with who they were writing to often. Or with the greetings towards those people. They'll have it at the beginning sometimes and the end as well. But Paul begins by telling us who the author is. Now, Paul is the author, and as we're going to see later in this letter, where's Paul when he's writing this letter? Who knows? He's in prison. He's still in prison. Isn't it amazing how much stuff this guy got done in prison? We think we can't get anything done because we got kids. Why don't I have kids? I can get something done. He's in prison. And he's writing a third of the Bible in prison. You know what? We need not to limit what God can do with us. Amen? So Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter. An apostle. The word apostle means a sent one. One sent out by God. An apostle of Jesus Christ. That's key. I don't want to just be an apostle. How about you? An apostle of who? A follower of who? Jesus Christ. Makes all the difference in the world. Paul immediately states where his authority comes from. It wasn't because men elected him. It was because God called him. And you know what? I'm looking for people who are called, not people who are elected. How about you? Amen? I want, to fo- I want to be taught by someone who's called. I want to be led into worship by somebody who's called, not someone who's elected. So Paul, speaking with apostolic authority, is going to address this false teaching and heresy, and he's writing to this group of largely Gentile believers, most of whom he had never met. But now he's going to instruct them as one sent by God. But notice how he became an apostle. I like this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. He became one not by his good works, nor by being elected by others, but by the will of God. This should be a lesson for everybody in here this morning. You know what? God's got a calling for every life in here. Did you know that? 
You're called. You're here, you're called. Amen? You're breathing, you're called. That's the acid test. Put a mirror. Uh, fogs, you're called. So God's got a calling on your life. Now it's up to us to respond. Because not all of us are called to be apostles or pastors or teachers or prophets, but God does have a calling on each of our lives, and each of us needs to respond. How do we walk in His will? How do we walk in His will? Let me tell you how. By knowing His word and yielding unto Him. Can I encourage you, if you haven't done this, or if you used to and you stopped, start doing it. Do this for a week. Start every morning before your feet hit the floor with prayer. And just, you know, God knows your heart. You don't have to pray anything, uh, you know, super eloquent. But you know what? Say, Lord, just lead my heart. Help me yield my life to you completely. Give me an opportunity to represent you today. Help me not to miss out on the divine appointments. And you just watch and see what God's going to do. And you know what, guys? Often we miss out on what God has for us because we never take the first step that God puts in front of us. Here comes the divine appointment. We just let it go by. Here comes another one. We let it go by. Here comes another one. We never get to step two because we never take step one. And he's telling them, look, by the will of God, he's the one who called me. He's the one who has put me in this position. I'm simply responding in obedience to him. And Timothy, verse 1 there, and Timothy, our brother. Paul said of Timothy, I have no one as like-minded. Same heart, same mind, same commitment. And I want you to notice something. He doesn't say Timothy the apostle. He says, Timothy, our brother, because Timothy was not an apostle, even though God used him mightily to reach many for the kingdom of God. We need to be careful what titles we give ourselves. Amen? Somebody tells me they're an apostle. I go, really? You saw Jesus. Because that's one of the requirements in Scripture. Now, I just, I don't, hey, I, you know, we'll talk, we can talk about that more. But here's the point. The point is we need to be careful. First of all, we should not seek titles. We should just seek to serve God. And you know what? Anybody who's truly called by God doesn't need a title to serve Him. They'll just serve Him anywhere. I don't need a title. I don't need to be recognized. I'm just going to do it because God called me to do it. And that's it. But sadly, what happens is too many today are seeking titles and positions. Our brother. You know what? I think that's a greater title anyway. He's a part of our family. And you know, when we have Christ in common, we have everything in common, and we are more than friends. We truly are family in Him. Though Gentiles Paul had never met, he's telling them, our brother. I never met you guys. Timothy's my brother. He's your brother. You know why? Because we have Jesus in common. You want to know something I love? I love just running into Christians I've never met before in random places, don't you? I love sitting down on the plane, and I find the lady next to me is a Christian. You know what? we got an immediate kinship because we got jesus in common you know what i have people that i've met in line at disneyland that i feel closer to by the time we get on the pirates of the caribbean or whatever than i do people i'm related to who don't know god why because when you have jesus in common you got everything in common holy spirit's dwelling within both of us Someone will see a Christian t-shirt going, oh, brother, you're Christian, yeah, me too, praise God. You're hugging each other. People, what's wrong with you people? You know, when you're long, long, we just got Jesus in common. My brother right here in Christ. How long have you known each other? Five minutes. My brother in Christ. The key to his faithfulness was he was in Christ. And I love that. It says there, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Who are the saints? Guys, do we know who the saints are? Who's a saint? Raise your hand. 
your hand's not up, we can pray with you to become a saint right now. You don't receive sainthood by performing miracles or anything else. A saint means sanctified or set apart one. And guess who those are? Every Christian is a saint. Easy way to remember when I was a youth pastor, those of you who have been coming a while, you've heard it a hundred times. hundred and one coming, here it is. You're either a saint or an ain't. Amen? You're either born again or you're not. And so there's no in between. We don't achieve sainthood. We become saints at salvation. He says there, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So he's writing to the brothers and sisters in Christ, and who, some of whom were surrounded by this false doctrine. He's encouraging them and exhorting them again to make Christ preeminent. It says they're in Colossae. Where's Colossae? It's located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's right along the Mediterranean Sea. Right next to it were the cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And that area was called Phrygia. You see that in the word? And that area right there, those three cities, were near Ephesus. Now, how did this church get planted? Because Paul never went. You know what I believe? Paul was in, now my opinion, just your pastor's opinion, Paul was in Ephesus for about three years as the pastor, planting a church. This city is less than 100 miles away. You think some people might have got saved in Ephesus that lived over there? Or do you think he might have sent one of his assistants? You know what? Why don't you go down to Colossae and start a church? I, you know, I believe it's a church plant out of Ephesus. I really do. Because it's so close. Paul was there for so long. And God was doing such a great work that out of it birthed this church in Colossae. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've often said, the Siamese twins in Scripture, grace and peace, because without grace there can be no peace. You've heard the acronym G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Because Christ paid the price, you and I can be at peace with Almighty God. Grace and peace come from our Father. And it says there, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does this grace come from? Not from your good works. Not from anything you've done. It wouldn't be grace if we had to work for it. It's a free gift given by the Father and the Son. It's not from the religious uh, attempts of men, but it comes straight from God. So let prayer lead the way. First, he gives us the source of his authority. He's an apostle. He's been called by God. He comes bringing a message of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let's take a look at what brings joy to an apostle's heart. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that the Lord Jesus Christ, his name's been mentioned how many times already? We're in the introduction. One, two, three. We're in verse 3. Is he trying to make a point? It's all about who? Jesus. That was weak. Who's it all about? Very good. Amen. And you know what? We need to be just as loud with that outside as we are in here. Now, we give thanks to God our Father of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives thanks, praying for you always. Though he had never met them, Paul's praying for them. Man, I like that. Man, I like that. Now, this is the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of one who wants to serve and minister to others. He's heard about what God was doing with them, and it caused his heart to rejoice, and he began to pray for them. Can I encourage you to do the same? Can I encourage you to start praying for people? And can I encourage you with this? Here's something unique about Paul's prayer. We'll see it in verse 4. He's praying for people that are doing great. 
You ever find yourself only praying for people that are going through a tough time? Right? I'm praying for that person. Why? Well, they're going through, you know what? And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for people going through a tough time. But you know what? We ought to pray for people that are doing great, too. Amen? Someone's on fire for God. God's using them. Pray for them. Because guess what? There's a target on their back. Amen? If God's using them, there's somebody not very happy about that. When you hear something good about someone, when God's doing something great through somebody's life, pray for them. Instead of only praying for those who are going through difficulty. We need to do that as well. Don't downplay that at all. But Paul was a man of prayer. Again, as any man or woman in the Bible who was used mightily by God is a man or woman of prayer. Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. If grace and peace are Siamese twins, these are the triplets. Because here's what they are. Faith, hope, and love. Notice there, faith, hope, and love. These, I believe, are three marks of a solid church, and they're marks of a mature believer. These things should be evident in our body. They should be evident in our lives as individuals. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's not just faith, but faith in Christ Jesus. There it is the fourth time, his name. Faith in Christ Jesus. It's not just faith in faith. Faith is only as good as the object that you place your faith in. I've got a lot of faith in myself. I believe in myself. It's not going to do you much good. And if you believe in yourself too much, it's going to do you some bad. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have confidence that comes from the Lord in trusting in who He has made us in Him, but our faith and our hope is not in me, it's in Him. Because I'm going to let me down. You ever let yourself down? Of course you did, right? You blow it. But the point is, God never will. Our faith is not in ourselves, our faith is in Him. But not only faith in Christ, but look what it says, and your love for all the saints. So it's faith in Christ and love for the saints. John 15 says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can I tell you one of the greatest compliments that I get as your pastor is when people who are new here tell me I've never been so loved at a church in my life. That's What encouragement. That's the way it ought to be, amen? But that doesn't happen because one or two people run around hugging everybody. You've got to help me out here, all right? The point is that we all need to have that love for each other. And not a fake love. Start praying for each other. You watch. Your love for each other will grow. But not only your love for the saints, but because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Where's our hope, you guys? It's in heaven. It's not in your bank account. It's not in your job track. It's not in your health. It's not in any of the things you can lose. Your hope is in heaven. Guys, if we got one glimpse of heaven, we would not want to come back. Amen? God won't show us because it'd be over. I'm I'm not going back. Are you kidding me? There's no way. You know, I've been blessed to be in some of the most beautiful places on this planet. I'll never forget being in Yosemite. Some of you have heard me say this before. We're on a pastor's retreat from the pastor's Calvary San Jose. We're looking out of Yosemite in just beautiful spot. And Pastor Don, my pastor, we're all standing there. We're all just kind of going, wow, this is awesome. And he goes, you know, compared to heaven, this is a dung heap. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. 
The most beautiful thing here, this is fallen earth and heaven's going to rock. Amen? And you know what's going to rock the most about heaven? Jesus is going to be there. We're going to see our Father. We're going to see it. We're going to see God. We're going to see Jesus face to face. That blows me away. I can already stand it. And you know what? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in this world, we forget where we're headed and where our home really is. Amen? Where's our home? It's in heaven. It's not here. Your plumbing, your plumbing burst at your house, fix it, but get over it, because who cares? <laughs> Amen? We're going to heaven. This is just a tent we're living in now. Our hope is in heaven. You, you'll hear me say it to you often, and I say it to myself as well. Someone else, I'll ask one of you guys, how are you guys doing? Oh, not so good. Are you going to heaven? Well, yeah, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> it's true. Not yet, but I'm going. <laughs> but guys, that's where our hope is. And no one can ever take that from you. Aren't you glad? By the way, heaven is not a hope so, it's a no so. It's our hope, but it's not a hope so. I know for sure that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I'm going to heaven. And by the way, we're all going to be there together, so we might as well just start loving on each other now. Amen? You're going to be there together. And it's going to be great, beyond what we can imagine. So three marks of mature fellowship. Faith in Jesus. Believing the Lord to do great things. Love for the saints, loving one another, and hope of heaven, living in the light of eternity. He's saying, here's what I've heard about you. Paul's writing, here's what I've heard about you guys in Colossae. Here's what I've heard, that you guys have faith in the Lord. You have a love for the saints, and you have the hope of heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. You heard it, in the word of the truth of the gospel. How, why do you have hope in heaven? Because you've been in the word. Guys, we get our eyes off of heaven because we stop reading the manual. We get our eyes off of this book and take it out of this book and we start looking around at this world instead. And we get overwhelmed and we get bummed out. I want to encourage you. Open up the word of God every single day. The Bible says we're to desire the word of God more than our necessary food and you're all eating every day. Amen? Refrigerator's got a really strong hinge on it, doesn't it? There's a reason for that. Right? That's right. You know, can you imagine we open this as many times as we open the fridge? These spiritual giants. Isn't that true? We need to open up God's Word and desire the Word of God more than our necessary food, and our hope and our focus and our passion will be on heaven and not on the things of this world. And I found that when our hope is in heaven, we have a greater impact on this world because we have an eternal focus. Verse 6. Which has come to you as it has also in all the world. Now I love this. The word of God has come to you. That's why you have hope. That's why you have faith. That's why you have love for the saints. But look what he says here. As it is also in all the world. You know what that verse says? The gospel had already been taken to the entire world. That's what it says. Now, how in the world did they do that? How old is the church at this point? 20 years old? 30 years old? This is about 60 AD. It's about 30 years old, the church. And yet, they've taken the word of God to the entire world. And what's amazing is that they did it without the technology that we have today. They didn't have any radios. No airplanes. Didn't have tracks to hand out. They didn't have you know, seminaries and programs. They didn't have Campus Crusade for Christ, right? They didn't have any of the things and the, the technology that you and I have today, but you know what they did have? 
They had boldness that came from the Holy Spirit, and they had an urgency in their heart to tell everybody about Jesus. That's what they had. You know what we need today? We've got the technology. We've got the radio. We've got everything under the sun, and yet we're not spreading the word with the same fervency they did back then. You know why? Because we need to depend more on the power of the Holy Spirit within the church today. We need to be desperate for the Holy Spirit to move. We need to be on our face and on our knees and saying, Lord, what do you want to do? How do you want to reach your people? I'm just a tool in the hand of my master, Lord. Show me what's up, and I'll do it. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. What's lacking is the power of the Holy Spirit, not more programs or technology. Amen? That's what we need in the church today. The Spirit of the living God to light a fire in our hearts. Well, notice here it also says, look at the second part of that verse, and it's bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The gospel was producing fruit. People were growing and people were getting saved. He's saying here, since you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, the word of God had been given to them, now fruit was coming out of them. How do you know someone's really been impacted by the word of God? Their life changes. Amen? I'm concerned if somebody supposedly gives their life to the Lord and nothing changes. Not my job to judge, nor do I want that job. But I would say this, I wouldn't want to be living a life where I'm no different than the person I was before I committed my life to Christ. Because if I'm a new creation in Christ, everything better change. It may not all change overnight. We ought to be moving closer to Him every day. Amen? And that's the heart of God and the calling upon us. And He's saying, guys, since you... This happened to you, there's been fruit. So he's rejoicing. This is the heart of the apostle. He's rejoicing because they're walking with God. Now all of this, keep in mind, as he's getting ready to exhort them about stuff going on all around them. He still sees what God is doing even in the midst of heresy within the, the city they live in. Then it says in verse 7, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras was their pastor. And so what has happened here, this heresy is going on in Colossae, and he was either frustrated or just needs some wisdom. So he goes to Paul and says, Paul, here's what's happening. Within our, there's Gnosticism and mystical stuff, and they're adding to the gospel, and Paul, I need some direction. And so he runs to, to Paul, and Paul's writing this letter to encourage and strengthen Epaphras to go back and bring them the truth to get their eyes back where they needed to be. You know what? That's an exhortation the church needs today. We need to get back to the centrality of Jesus Christ. We need to stop hiding his name in our church. We need to stop hiding the cross in the church. We need to stop trying to get around the cross so we don't offend somebody. That just, man, does that grieve the heart of God or What? Can you imagine he hung on the cross and suffered and died that we might have eternal life and now we want to hide it? Well, that's offensive. The cross is offensive. So we'll just take that down. And, and you know what? It's offensive to say sin or it's offensive to point people. So we're just not going to do that because we want people to feel comfortable. Comfortable, here it comes, comfortable on their way to hell. Is that true or not? People need Jesus, Amen. And if we ever stop preaching the gospel here, kick me in the shins and drag me outside. 
The point is, guys, we got to be preaching the truth of the gospel without compromise because this is eternity hanging in the balance. This is not a game we're playing here. This is what it's all about. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. And he says, Here's, you, I've learned from Epaphras about you. He came and told me all that was happening. He's a faithful brother. And you know what? He declared to us your love in the Spirit. You have a love for one another. They had a love for Paul. He brought word of the fruitfulness and the faithfulness. And at the same time told them of the growing heresy that was there. Paul was so blessed to know that the gospel is producing fruit and he's sitting in prison while it happens and we don't even hear a word about it, do we? We just hear him saying, praise God. He doesn't say, you know, so how come you guys aren't kicking down some help over here? Why aren't you storming the prison to get me out? You know what? He doesn't care about his circumstances. He cares about seeing others walking with God. Let your prayer lead the way. Let prayer lead the way. What brings joy to an apostle's heart people having received the word of god having faith in christ having love for one another having assurance of heaven the fruit of others being saved whether he led them to the lord himself or not people being saved brought joy to his heart now let's finish up let prayer lead the way prayer goes before paul in ministry and watch how paul prays for fellow believers this should be an instruction manual for how we ought to pray for others as well look at verse 9 For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Since the day he heard what? That they were walking in faith and walking in love and had the hope of heaven and were serving God. And he was praying for them even though they were doing well. But he had a burden to pray for them. Notice first how he prays and then we'll see what he prays. It says there, I do not cease to pray pray for you. The Bible says, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. Paul was committed to praying frequently and fervently. Again, for a group of people he had never met. Does that convince you that you're not praying for people you do know? You're not praying for people in your own family? We need to be praying more. Yet we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now what does he pray? Look what he says. He prays without ceasing, he prays fervently, and he says, that you may be filled with with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. If you underline stuff in your Bible, can I encourage you to underline that? That you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He doesn't, say, doesn't pray for ailments. I pray for all the sick. Should we pray for the sick? You bet. But that's not the number one most important thing in His prayer life, is it? Should we be praying for those who are struggling in relationships or have problems with some of their possessions. Okay. But what's most important is what he's praying right now, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Guys, can I encourage you? If you ever think to pray for me, just pray that. Don't pray that I get a bigger house. Don't pray that I car work. I don't care. Or they grow hair or what, anything, okay? Just pray that I'll grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding of my Savior. That's Paul's prayer. His prayer isn't for stuff. It's to know God better. Guys, stuff is perishing. God's not. Stuff is passing away. Heaven's not. So he's praying. May they grow in their knowledge of his will. Don't you want to know God's will for your life? You know, that's probably the number one question a pastor gets. It's right up there anyway. How do I know God's will? 
Can I, this is going to sound really flip. Pray, stay in the word, love God, worship, and do what you want. You know why? When you pray, you stay in God's word, you're in fellowship, and you worship, you're going to want to do what God wants. It's amazing how that happens. It's amazing how when I'm in prayer, because it doesn't make any sense some of the things you want to do now. All of a sudden, you want to quit your job. You want to do that. God's called me. Everybody's like, you're out of your mind. No, I'm in my right mind, finally. Because I got my mind and my focus and my passion on him. A man is no fool who gives him what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Second of all, look what else he prays. Not only that they would have the knowledge and the will in all wi- and know the will of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, but look, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Guys, it's not enough to know it here. We've got to walk it out daily. It's not enough to spend every day in the Word. I'm a Bible scholar, but I have no joy. That's not good. I've met Bible scholars with no joy. I'm like, dude, you've read the Bible. Have you met the author? Because there ought to be some joy, amen? There ought to be some rejoicing. Christians should not look like they've been sucking on lemons. You're going to heaven, amen? You're filled with the Spirit of the living God. You're a new creation in Christ. Your sin's been forgiven. Man, you're just child, adopted into his family. I'm bummed. Why? Flat tire. It's perishing. Get your eyes up here. Amen? And quit being bummed out about stuff that doesn't matter. He says that you may walk worthy, fully pleasing him. How many want to please God? Don't you want to please God? You know what keeps us from pleasing God most often? Wanting to please man. Well, yeah, but I, I'd like to please God, but if I say that, he won't be happy, so I want to please man instead. And we do that, don't we? Well, if I say that, he'll say, you know, what are you, a Jesus freak or something? And then uh, we play out the whole conversation, and then the guy and the co-worker is going to think I'm a nut, and then I, I'm just not going to say it. I'd rather be cool than, you know, on fire for God, you know. It is amazing how cool and on fire are kind of the opposites, but here's the point. I don't want to be cool. I want to be on fire for God, Amen. And you know what? He says, let's be pleasing unto him. God, not man. Not how popular you are with men, but where you stand with God. What pleases God? You ever thought about that? You know what pleases God? Being fruitful in him. You know what pleases God? When you worship. That pleases God. Sometimes I come here on a Sunday morning, I don't think you know that. I'm over there on the side going, hmm, do they know we're singing? Because here's the point, I'm not going to go, here's the, guys, we're worshiping God. It's okay to worship, isn't it? By the way, we're going to do that in heaven. Let's get used to it now. It's okay to worship. He's worthy to be worshipped and to be praised and be honored. And it's a joyful noise unto the Lord no matter how bad you sound, okay? Don't worry about it. I don't sound that good. So what? So what? Sounds good to him. Who are you trying to please, man or God? Amen? Sounds good to him. Keep singing. I'm almost done. Kind of. Now, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, walk in it. Be increasing in knowledge of God. Guys, don't you want to be growing? Is your life producing fruit? That's the question I have for you. Don't answer it. Just in your own heart. Are you growing spiritually and is your life producing fruit? Think about it. Is your life producing fruit? Are lives being impacted by the, for the kingdom by the way you're living your life? Verse 11, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. I want you to notice something here, and we may end on that verse. We'll see. 
But here's the thing. Strengthen with all might according to His glorious power. Where does the power come from? From Him. Guess what that word power is? I'll give you one guess. In Greek, what is it? Dunamos. Where we get the word dynamite or dynamic, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You shall receive power from one high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Guess what? He's saying here, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, impacting the world around you. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses. Here, the Holy Spirit is strengthening us to do that. We might be able to bear all of our trials, and that's his heart. The Holy Spirit not only empowers us to witness, but he gives us joy in the midst of difficulty. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy. Here's what it says. For all patience and long suffering with joy. How many of you guys do so well with that one? It says long suffering with joy. Patience with joy. Some people say to me, I've just been waiting on the Lord. I'm, just, I'm being patient. I'm waiting. I'm being patient. I'm not very happy about it. That's not patience. Patience has joy. And it's not long-suffering if there's no joy either. You're not suffering long. You're suffering short. Right? Quickly. Lord, give me patience right now. You know, that's what we do. And we're trying to command that He would, you know, Lord, conform to my will in my heart right now. And you know what, guys? I think one of the greatest testimonies we can have as Christians is to go through a difficult time and have joy anyway. People go, dude, are you out of your mind? No, I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. You just lost your job. It's all right. My father's got a cattle on a thousand hills. He'll take care of me. You just got diagnosed with cancer. Well, he's either going to heal me or I'm going to heaven. Can't lose. It's all good. You know what? It's learning to put our faith and our hope in him and have joy, not based on our circumstances, because that's what the world does, but have joy in spite of our circumstances because we've gotten an eternal perspective. Verse 12. I didn't say for sure, so that's not a lie. Verse 12. <laughs> Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. We will stop there. Now, prayer is not only to strengthen our walk going forward, but giving thanks to God for what He's already done. Guys, we need to pray for what's in front of us, but we need to be thanking God for what He's already done. Amen? We need to spend part of our time in thanksgiving, in worship. Part of prayer is worship. Lord, thank you. Can we say that enough? Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Lord, I'm blown away. He that knows me best loves me most. He knows every wicked, vile thing I've ever thought or done, and he loves me anyway. What a great and awesome God. Do we believe that God can transform any life? What's the answer? You better believe it, and aren't you glad? There are no levels of sin with God. He, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. We can all be forgiven. And if we start to downplay that, we're limiting the work of the cross. So we'll pick up in verse 12 next week, but I just want to say, in closing, let the Lord, let prayer lead the way. What brings joy to the apostle's heart? The word of, the, of faith and love and hope in other believers. Guys, may that be the source of our joy as well. We should be excited when we someone else, see someone else doing great with the kingdom of God. Amen? Not be jealous. Be encouraged. 
Can I tell you something? People say, such and such a church, 80 people got saved. You know, and I act like I'm going to be bummed out. Yeah, they had a huge thing over there. I'm like, praise God. It's not a competition, amen? We're all on the same team, right? We should be encouraged by what God is doing in the lives of others. But guys, we should not only pray for those who are hurting, but for those who are doing well. And we also need to learn to pray for other believers, not just for physical things, but for things that will outlast this life. For spiritual wisdom, that they might know the will of God. I'll pray that for you. Will you pray that for me? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and worship you, Lord. You're a great and an awesome God. And Lord, I just thank you that it's not a mystery. It's nothing mystical. It's nothing hidden. But the gospel is so plain and so clear and so right in front of us. Lord, I pray that nobody here would get caught up in all the different religions that are out there trying to draw us away from the simple truth. The greatest worship song I think ever written, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Lord, I pray everyone here would know the love of Jesus Christ. They would know your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to thank you that we see in each other faith in the Son, hope of heaven, and love for one another. So Lord, we come humbly before you. We desire to know you better. We do pray, I pray for everybody in this room, that we would know your heart, that we would know your will for our lives, and that we would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.